everyone, and welcome to the Primordial Soup Pod. My name is Aaron Johnson. And I'm Rustin Perret. Every two weeks, Rustin and I get together to discuss topics in the field of ecology, natural history, and evolution. Absolutely. And uh, this time around, we're talking about coral reefs. Coral reefs. Everyone knows what a coral reef is. Pretty much. They've seen Finding Nemo. They get the idea. Just to sum it up, coral reefs, incredibly important areas for biodiversity, great areas for tourism as well. Just great areas to study all around. Lots of cool stuff in coral reefs. Absolutely. I'm honestly shocked that we hadn't talked about coral reefs on this podcast a lot before now. Just because there's so much to talk about. I pretty much knew what topic I was going to do for this episode. But in that process, I must have come across two or three other really, really cool different topics that I could have done. There's a lot. I thought maybe it was almost a bit too overwhelming because I like to do smaller niche topics. I feel like I can be more of a expert in a smaller topic. I can cover all the ends of it. But coral reefs are just so much. Even like small corners, you'll find that wow, there's still a lot of research in these areas or it's got so much connectivity to everything around it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's so much biodiversity in such a small space that like every little pocket of it has something really, really interesting going on. They're truly fascinating ecosystems. With that being said, is it my turn to go first or are you up? I believe I am up this time. All right, take it away. Okay, so I'm not going to be discussing the coral itself, but I will talk about a group of animals that are still incredibly important to managing the reefs. you have any idea what these are? I have a couple, but go ahead. Parrotfish. Yeah, I figured you were going there. So parrotfish are a group of about 100 or so species, and they all belong to the family Scaridae. I couldn't find the translation for this, which I often like to do. I think just roughly translates to fish in Latin. Anyways, parrotfish are found all across the world, but they typically have high population densities in coral reefs. Specifically, the Indo-Pacific is where you find the most. They are usually about 12 to 20 inches, or 30 to 50 centimeters, but they do range in size quite a bit. They go from 5 inches to over 4 feet in the largest species, so ranging from 1 centimeter to about 1.3 meters. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, yeah, a lot of diversity here. And they're usually all very colorful, too, coming in various shades of blue, green, purple, pink. But this is typical for a lot of reef fish, just because coral reefs are very colorful. Yeah, yeah, they are. But the most striking thing about them, of course, and the reason for their namesake is... The beak. The beak. The beak. So their teeth are all fused together to resemble a beak like a parrot. Right. The beak is actually thousands of teeth lined up in about 15 rows and densely packed together. Right. Or as Charlie Kelly would say it, beak. <laughs> is that how he says it? Yeah. You remember that episode when <laughs> they're, at, they're at a restaurant and Charlie's like, what if when I order a chicken sandwich, I just, I order the beak on the side and D sitting across him and she goes, or just don't order the beak at all. <laughs> and then the waitress comes up and she asks Charlie what he wants. And he just goes, beak, beak. <laughs> just blurts it out. Yes. I thought it was maybe from the bird lawyer, the court episode. And I somehow missed that bit. No, no, it's, it's a different episode. He really loves his birds, though. Oh, well, we all do. Absolutely. All right, carry on. 
Anyways, so like sharks, these guys do constantly shed and regrow parts of the beak. So they're still losing layers of it at a time. But like I said, 15 rows. So that beak didn't go anywhere. The beak is made up of fluoropatite, which is actually one of the strongest biominerals on Earth. And actually, if you look at it under a microscope, the crystals of the teeth are microscopically woven together. It almost looks like chain mail. Yeah, these are tough beaks. And it makes sense because it allows them to eat their preferred food, which in most species is algae that grows on coral or rocks. So they eat it. They're going to have to scrape off the surface. And, you know, they don't want to have fear of breaking their beaks. So super tough. Don't have to worry about it. So parrotfish usually have a reputation for feeding on algae that may be covering dead or dying coral. Although sometimes it may be growing on healthy coral as well. And usually this is great for the coral, as algae can quickly outcompete and choke it out, especially if there's high nutrient concentration, something like an algal bloom. This can kind of just overtake an area quickly. Right. That's the thing that a lot that a lot of people don't realize about coral reefs is that somewhat paradoxically, coral reef water actually has a really low nutrient concentration because corals are able to survive in a low nutrient environment. So if you add a bunch of nutrients into that environment, they're quickly outcompeted by things like seagrass and like you just mentioned, algae. Mm -hmm. It's also like a rainforest. Rainforest soil has very low nutrients. Right. That's just because there's so much growing there. it, It doesn't sit there long. Right. Anyways, this doesn't seem to hurt the coral too much. In fact, it's often been said that the parrotfish are the saviors of the reef. They help keep the algae in check and allow the coral to flourish, which in turn does provide habitat for countless different animal species. That's a really cool name for a fish, by the way. The savior of the reef. I feel like that should be the third Finding Nemo movie, like the tagline. Oh, God, it'd be so awful. Finding Nemo 3, the savior, savior of, the, of reef. the reef. Was he going to cross over with the Avengers? Maybe. I don't know. It's They're both owned by <laughs> Disney, so who knows? <laughs> It's going to end with uh, Captain America going, hey, I like your spunk, kid. I like the cut of your jib. (laughs) Well, Captain America's dead, so how are you resurrecting him? We got a new Captain America. We do? Yeah. It's uh, uh, Sam. I forget his last name. Falcon. Uh, I'm not caught up on the MCU. It's not worth catching up. Yeah, although I heard Guardians of the Galaxy 3 was really good. Uh, you know so. what? I'll stand by. That was a good one. That was the first one I've enjoyed in years. Yeah, they really they really lost a lot of momentum there, didn't they? Yeah. I mean, you can't hype something up as like, this is the end-all moment, and then say, but there are 17 more end-all moments coming, so <laughs> keep buying those tickets. Right. It's like right at the end of the Kentucky Derby, they're like, oh, wait, now you have to go around the track another time, and then we really decide who the winner is. No, we got all hyped up for the first ending. That's where it should stop. I guess the problem was kind of a good one, in that the problem was that Endgame was just too good and ended things so well that anything after that just felt forced. You can't hype up this bad guy for years. Have him come, have, you know, executed fairly well. Pierce, yes. yeah, movie concluded, and then say, but there are 17 other bad guys, and they're worse than him, but somehow no one heard of them because they hid really well. <laughs> right, right. Where you just didn't know they were there. Which, to be fair, was kind of always a problem with the MCU. You had these really powerful bad guys that were always there somehow, 
and had these backstories that were explained at the beginning of all these movies and the later part of phase three. But again, like no one knew about them before now. What doesn't make any sense. Like somehow Dormammu was only a problem in 2016. Not even only in 2016, he was only a problem for like half an hour. <laughs> they have resolved so quickly. It wasn't like a month long war or anything. Well, I mean, I mean, think about most of the movies like these villains are only villains for like a week tops. They, they don't survive and come back later. Right. Well, that, that's the joke about Age of Ultron is that it's not an age. It's like half a week of Ultron. That's what the movie should be called. Yeah. But anyway. Anyway, like a lot of herbivores, parrotfish constantly eat, usually because algae, plants, lower nutrient concentrations. So they have to eat a lot to compensate. And as they eat, they're constantly consuming minerals like calcium carbonate as well. This can come from the rocks and the hard coral bits that they consume. They actually have pharyngeal jaws in the back of the throat that grind up the consumed minerals. So if you've ever seen the movie Alien, you know how it opens its mouth and there's another mouth in there? They have that. It's just modified further back, and it's just more like a crushing plate. Okay. So they got like the Mori eel thing going on a little bit. Exactly, except it doesn't shoot forward. It's more like a compactor. Because they're scraping the algae, but they're always taking bits of mineral with it. So they got to crush it to pass it through. Otherwise, you know, that might hurt. Just swallowing rocks all the time. Okay, so their mouth is basically like, it's kind of like a garbage truck. And that you have stuff that gets thrown in. And then eventually at the back, it's all compacted and then processed. It would be like a garbage truck if you threw your trash on the curb. The garbage truck just came, scraped it up. And then passed it to a second part that just compacted it. Right, but there is a compactor in the garbage There truck, is a right? compactor, but they wouldn't be eating a whole can. They'd be scraping it off the pavement. Maybe they just go through an alleyway. Okay, so my metaphor is flawed, but not entirely inaccurate. It's still, it's still workable. Just okay. need a little flexibility to it. All right, I'll take it. Okay, so use their beaks, they scrape off the algae, use their pharyngeal jaws to grind up any calcium carbonate that comes with it. It passes through the digestive tract. However, parrotfish don't actually have the acidic stomach like most animals do. If they did, the calcium carbonate would react with the acid and buffer it. So calcium carbonate is the main ingredient for a lot of antacids. If they had acidic stomachs, it would be like, they just be ODing on Pepto-Bismol all the time. So they're just constantly eating Tums? Yeah, they're just constantly eating Tums. That's what it's like. So no, the calcium carbonate just has to pass through them. So their stomach, they still have a stomach. It's just very different from what we would consider most animals having. Okay, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So the calcium carbonate passes right through them. What do you think their excrement is like? Sand. Yep, it's largely sand. They're just pooping sand. The largest species, the humphead green parrotfish, can actually poop out roughly 200 pounds of sand per year. Wow. If you watch a parrotfish poop, it straight up looks like pure sand just spewing out everywhere. In fact, the Hawaiian name for the red lip parrotfish, which is Uhu Palukaluka, that roughly translates to loose bowels. And also in Hawaii, in some beaches, the majority of the sand on the beach is parrotfish poop. Up to 70% of this sand can come from parrotfish. 
Damn. That's crazy. That's crazy. I Terry the Sandman could never do that. <laughs> no, Terry just has like a little school of parrotfish in a tank that he just brings to beaches to help replenish them over time. Yeah, he just feeds them tums and they they just <laughs> Or maybe he just has like a pack of them. He trains them. He's like a shepherd. <laughs> yeah. They come through, they eat the algae, they poop out the sand. Exactly. So I've kind of given you a decent summary of parrotfish as a whole. At its surface, parrotfish seem great. They keep the reefs in shape. They poop out sand that makes up our beaches. These guys are the best, right? Yeah, they're the savior of the reef so far. Well, like most things in nature, there isn't a good guy or bad guy per se. Everything's a bit more complicated. So I'm going to do a more deep dive into the ecology of parrotfish and specifically the relationship they have with coral and the reefs. Because I feel when I was researching these, a lot of websites would just say that, oh, you know, fun fact, scrape algae, poop sand. I mean, that's certainly interesting, but I want to know the deeper level. What roles are they playing? Is this really good for the reef? So I found a book online and not not a cheap book, by the way, but it does deserve a shout out. The Biology of Parrotfish, which is a collection of many different papers I found useful in my research. Unfortunately, all the papers that I wanted to read were not available online, so I just had to get the book. Interesting book, though. Uh, absolutely. So let's start off. Let's consider the coral reef as a whole. Coral reefs are dominated by Coral, yeah, shocker. But what is coral actually made of? What's the main ingredient? So you have an idarian with a hard shell that has an algal symbiont. But the, the hard shell, if you if you took a coral, what is the majority of it? Yeah, it's the shell. Yes. The, uh, the shell or the test, whatever you want to call it, that's calcium carbonate, largely calcium carbonate. Okay. Which is... A very common mineral. I've already mentioned it several times. Main green for Tums, chalk, and limestone. Present a lot of things. And like you said, coral emitter polyps. You can think of each polyp as kind of like a tiny anemone, which makes sense they are closely related. And these secrete a calcium carbonate sort of skeleton that forms the large structure. So the corals, you know how they're large and spiky and hard? That's all calcium carbonate right there. And these structures build up to become reefs, which are fantastic habitat for fish and huge biodiversity hotspots. So these reefs need to obtain their calcium carbonate from tidy bits dissolved in the seawater. Without it, they can't grow. What parrotfish are doing is they're taking dead or dying coral and circulating that calcium carbonate back into the environment. So they take it and break it down into a small granule. And this is a process known as bioerosion. Bio meaning something living is doing it. So the materials they break down are either reused by coral in the reef or turned into sand for beaches or transported elsewhere in the ocean. This is incredibly important. This is exceedingly important. Some studies have found that you can determine the health of a coral reef strictly off of how the carbonate is flowing. So if you're having a net loss of calcium carbonate in that system, that's not good for the reef. It's incredibly important. If you just look at the reef as a whole, it's largely calcium carbonate. Right, right. That makes sense. That means that the calcium carbonate isn't getting taken back up by new corals, right? Yes, exactly. It's not being taken up or maybe it's being transported elsewhere. And while there are other animals that can break down calcium carbonate, parrotfish just happen to have one of the biggest impacts. 
So the reason they're important for reefs is not just about controlling algae, but also about how they recycle materials, how they keep everything flowing. In some environments, it is almost entirely parrotfish that recycle the reefs. Like I said, there are other animals that can do this. There's sponges, some worms, and gastropods that do it as well. But there are entire studies dedicated to watching parrotfish eat and seeing where they end up crapping. Because where they poop can literally help shape the entire ecosystem. The point I'm going to be bringing up a lot of times is this. It varies. Parrotfish are diverse. There's about 100 species or so. They all do it differently. So... Each parrotfish is having a different impact on the reef. They're shaping it in different ways depending on their lifestyle and their adaptations. Sometimes they eat where they crap and the material goes right back onto the reef, which is good. It's keeping it in the same area that can be used by new growing corals. Young corals are coming up. Other times they swim off and deposit it elsewhere. In that case, they're taking it out of the system. You know, maybe all that sand is actually going onto a beach. You know, beaches, also important ecosystems, that's still helpful. One study found that they like to eat from shallow areas and poop in deeper ones, which actually promoted a net movement of materials to the deeper end. So they're foraging in the shallow end coral, but they're promoting the growth of the deeper end coral. Wow. Not since the Chincha Islands has poop been so important. This is amazing. Oh, that's the poop episode. Ha! I I struggled for a bit. I didn't know it by his actual name, just the Bird Turd Island. (laughs) Yes, the Bird Turd Island. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's the callback. So you can kind of think of parrotfish here like decomposers in a forest, whereas they convert dead trees back into soil. It's a little similar to that. You're taking uh, material and you're keeping it moving. This is helpful to the corals overall, but there actually are some drawbacks to this. This is my favorite chapter of the book, by the way, and it's known as Parrotfish, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, Parrotfish as Coral Predators. So I mentioned that parrotfish feed on algae. It's inevitable that they're going to scrape away some of the coral with it. I mean, that algae might be growing on dead coral or dying coral, but it also can grow on living coral sometimes. So even though they're getting that algae off them, that's nice, but they're still taking a piece of the coral with it. Right. Yeah, And in some instances, it can be very low. It could be about 1% of the living polyps being removed. That's really not much. But even though they're considered herbivores, they're still taking away pieces of the coral. Usually when they bite, their bites are spread out in corals, but occasionally they can be more concentrated. And when that happens, a parrotfish can actually kill the corals. Oh, okay. That's Yeah, that's never great. Yeah. Now, white coral does have predators, and they are part of the ecosystem. They don't have many predators, though. In fact, I think only 5% of all known fish species have been documented feeding on coral. So not a lot of fish eat coral. It's just not that palatable. Right. It's also pretty well protected and shelled and encased. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty hard and tough, and no one really wants to go through all that. Not much of a reward. But parrotfish do. And it's, they're not targeting the coral, but they're still eating it. And it's not impossible for them to wipe out an entire colony. An entire colony? Wow. An entire colony. One study in the Caribbean, parrotfish actually managed to wipe out an entire colony when their feeding was too frequent. They're not targeting the coral, but if they're just feeding on one too much, it just can't recover from that. It's too much damage over time. Whoa. 
Although the study did note the species that were affected were some of the more fragile ones still. Don't take away all your coral. So every time the coral is bitten, even though the parrotfish may be removing algae, they can still hurt it. The coral could be prone to infection or parasites from the damage, and they will have to take time to recover from the bite. When this happens, the coral may focus on recovering rather than other energy-expending tasks like reproduction. Parrotfish feeding on the coral can actually inhibit colony growth this way because the coral has to focus on healing instead of making new coral, instead of reproducing. But like I said, it can be hard to determine how parrotfish eat coral as a whole because they're so diverse. It varies on how they feed on the corals. There are two unofficial groups of parrotfish known as scrapers and excavators. You know, the names kind of give away what they do. The scrapers more or less just take the algae off the coral without removing too many living polyps. The excavators just take the whole chunk. So one of those groups is pretty badass and the other one just seems kind of lazy. <laughs> One's all about precision. It was like, eh, food's food. <laughs> right. There's something edible in there somewhere. <laughs> I'll find it eventually. Or at least my stomach will. <laughs> if I eat a lot, I'll get something in the end. So the scraping parrotfish wounds can usually heal in just a few weeks, whereas the excavators, you know, that can take a lot longer. But at the same time, it also varies on the way that they feed, or how should I word it, how they're feeding on the coral. So we know the methods of which they use, but if they're spreading it out, that's not as bad. So an excavator, you know, if they're spreading out their bites, that's okay. You know, they can recover from it. But if they all concentrate on one area, they can wipe out that coral, unfortunately. Yeah. Okay, I could see that. And I don't know if they're uh, intentional about how they feed. They might just be going for algae. They might just be grazing like cattle where they kind of just move along. It varies. While a lot of the larger parrotfish are not obligate coral predators, some species, about 50% of their bites contain living coral. So... The bigger the parrotfish, the more coral they can take away. But they're not targeting the coral, at least not most of them. There is an exception, and that is the largest parrotfish, the green humphead. This is the one that gets about four feet or so. Right. It's just straight up eats coral. Studies have found it has no preference for coral covered in algae or not. Every time it bites, it removes about two cubic centimeters of live coral. In fact, in areas where this parrotfish is present, it is the number one contributor to bioerosion, even if it is not the most common parrotfish in the area. I mean, they're just units. They just take out a lot of it. And you said these are mostly present in the Indo-Pacific? Yes, that's where the largest concentration is. But they are in pretty much every ocean. So the areas with the most parrotfish diversity, even if there's more of the smaller ones, it's these big hump heads that are actually contributing the most. Okay, wow, yeah. All right, so saviors of the reef, they definitely are not. Well, not. I mean, they're still doing good, but they're, you, you gotta pay them, you gotta pay the toll. So, like I said, with parrotfish, it just varies. It's hard to sum them up as a whole because there's a lot of parrotfish and they all feed in different ways. They have different ways of feeding. Right. That makes sense. If you have different species, they feed in a bunch of different ways, especially if there are multiple parrotfish in a certain area, you have Mm -hmm. some, you would have some kind of niche partitioning going on there, right? Yeah. So it's hard to just sum them up as a whole. And like I said, even if they aren't killing the coral, they are preventing it from reproducing as as a focus on healing instead. 
Okay. So this is where things might get, you know, a little bit worse. The ability for corals to recover from wounds depends on their size yeah. as a collective. So larger colonies can usually shake it off, but smaller ones, not as well. This can be a major problem as coral reefs as a whole are becoming smaller. So basically, if coral reefs are already under a lot of stress, this could be the straw that breaks the camel's back. It's been found that coral's ability to recover largely depends on conditions like temperature, which is not great if that temperature is rising. Not to mention ocean acidification could also weaken these skeletons because calcium carbonate will dissolve more at a lower pH. And there's also been studies that have found that some corals cannot grow in areas with too high parrotfish densities because of the damage they sustain in the feeding. But that also depends on the coral. Right. So are there certain coral structures that generally can tolerate parrotfish wounds a little bit better than others? Or is it just purely based on the size of the coral that determines how well they're able to recover? Uh, when I said size of coral, I meant the size of the coral reef as a whole. Oh, okay. So a large coral reef, I mean, parrotfish can feed on them like there's no tomorrow. A thousand years or so, when people weren't as spread out, I'm sure the parrotfish could feed as much as they want. But nowadays, coral reefs are a lot smaller. They're already under a lot of threats. And, you know, the parrotfish might actually hurt them a bit. So it can be hard to determine how parrotfish affect reefs overall. Usually read about, like how I said, they're the incredible important reef saviors. And I still think they are very important for reefs. But I think people are anthropomorphizing them a bit too much. They're not, they're not superheroes. Okay. We're not getting that, uh, that third movie in the Finding Nemo soon-to-be trilogy. <laughs> okay, so instead of being like a pure superhero, they're more like a, a Rorschach-type character. Yeah, definitely uh, more of an anti-hero, renegade kind of guy. Yeah. Something more like a dirty, hairy kind of thing. Yeah, they're, they're operating outside the law, you know? Yeah. So to sum things up, on the plus side, they can remove noxious algae. They cycle calcium carbonate. They can create new sediment for reef growth and beaches. They maintain biodiversity, and they can provide new habitats for a lot of animals. On the downside, they can decrease coral reproduction rates, kill off juvenile coral and more fragile species, inhibit coral growth, and very rarely wipe out entire reefs in some scenarios. I will say that bit's very rare. So they can completely reshape the corals that live in the reefs, but they may also promote biodiversity by keeping fast-growing species in check. Right. Okay, yeah, yeah. So while they may be an integral part to a healthy coral reef, they may do more damage to smaller and less diverse reefs, which is also quickly becoming the norm for a lot of coral reefs now. But at the same time, larger parrotfish populations are decreasing as well due to overfishing. Right. So it seems like their negative effects aren't as much of a concern as the fact that they're just disappearing entirely. I'd say uh, definitely the good by far outweighs the bad, but I think I wanted people to know that anything in nature is a bit more complicated. Any organism that we value a lot within an ecosystem can be altered or perverted or occupy a different role where it's much more harmful than helpful to the overall benefit of an ecosystem. Organisms aren't inherently good or bad the way that we often like to portray them. Like I said, the parrotfish have been part of the reefs for a very long time. There are no invasive parrotfish, to my knowledge. 
Now, if we got some giant species that somehow showed up and is decimating on the coral, that might be a different story, but that's not the case. They're part of this system, and they've definitely co-evolved alongside the coral. Right, and they're definitely a huge benefit to beaches. I mean, just ask Terry. He knows all about it. Yeah, he loves them, making his job easy. Right. He's got his own little flock. Yeah, so I guess that sums up my bit here. Now, I have to reiterate, parrotfish are not the villains here. Don't see a parrotfish and go, I have to kill this thing. It's ruining the coral. No, it still has a lot of net benefits overall. It's just that there's always going to be a little tax with something. Just want you to think, you know, see all the sides of it. Consider all the different angles to it. I don't want to be canceled by any pro parrotfish people to say I'm saying I'm spewing propaganda. Just some more sides. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. That seems like a, a very nuanced portrayal of parrotfish. I appreciate that. I appreciate the the depths you went to 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 really give us that picture. So as soon as I read about parrotfish, the good, the bad, and the ugly, I know like, okay, I gotta base my bet on this. I have to read this paper. <laughs> and I'm yeah. glad I did. Yeah, me it too. It's a very interesting read. I would recommend the book. I might check that out, actually. That sounds like a really cool read. But uh, with that being said, am I up now? Why wouldn't you be? I don't know. I don't know if you had anything else to say about parrotfish, or if there's a little blurb you got going on here. <laughs> no, he actually have a surprise guest. He's going <laughs> to kill you. <laughs> he brought a live parrotfish onto the show who's going to do the second part of the show. Smack him around against the microphone for a little bit. <laughs> Oh, uh, I guess if I do have one last thing to say, don't keep parrotfish as a pet. There are a lot of good saltwater fish that you can keep in an aquarium. Parrotfish just really aren't suited for it. Good to know. Good to know. So with that being said, let me uh, let me jump into my bit then. So coral reefs are pretty under threat in today's world. And when you think of those threats, what do you generally think of? Parrotfish. <laughs> no. Uh, I would say climate change okay. being a big one. Yep. Definitely human activity as well. Right. But I'd say that's also climate change. Right. So, yeah. So climate change, overfishing, declining water quality, things like that. Right. I'm going to talk about a very serious threat to coral reefs, but only in certain parts of the world. That would be the crown of thorns starfish. Mm, I have heard of these. Yes. I would be shocked if you hadn't heard of these. Also, something worth noting is that crown of thorn starfish is repeatedly abbreviated as cots and so it appears in my notes as cots so I'll you're have gonna be saying cots sometimes i'll be saying cots but i have things written in my notes like cots are destroying coral reefs which i find bizarre and utterly hilarious it makes it sound like we're putting the coral reefs to sleep Need to wake up. <laughs> right. <laughs> Just need some caffeine. But anyway, I figured that was worth mentioning. But if you're in Australia, this topic is definitely not new to you if you're at all familiar with the Great Barrier Reef. Just a bit of background on these starfish themselves. So the crown of thorns is a massive starfish. They can grow up to two and a half feet across, which for a starfish is enormous. Like even to us, that's really large. And there are actually four different known species which live throughout the tropical Indian and Pacific Oceans. So kind of the same area as your larger parrotfish that you were talking about earlier. And this area does include the Great Barrier Reef. They can be a variety of different colors. And honestly, if you just saw one on the ocean floor, it would be really cool looking or 
downright nightmarish, depending on your perspective. They're very brightly colored. They have these really pointy spines, numerous arms. Some some of the individuals have been noted to have up to 21 different arms. But like I mentioned, their most defining characteristic is their spines. These cover their bodies and they are loaded with toxins, which protect them from predators. So basically, they kind of look like a bath mat from hell. Seems like a pretty accurate description. Not something you want to step on. Definitely not. Definitely not. And I will explain why. But the most important aspect of this species, at least from an ecological perspective, is its diet because these starfish feed on reef building corals. And not like the parrotfish, which is like trying to eat the things on top of the coral. No, this crown of thorns starfish eats the coral itself. It straight up just wants the coral. Right. Just straight up eating the coral itself. Not trying to get anything off of it and damaging the coral. No. They straight up destroy reefs. So they do this. uh, They feed on corals in like this classic starfish manner, which is that which means that they expel their stomach around the coral, which liquefies it and digests it and then move on, leaving only the skeleton behind. So it looks like you still have a coral there to someone who doesn't know anything about coral, but the coral is white, which means that you're just left with essentially the skeleton. It's no longer living. So to put this in human terms, imagine you decide to eat corn on the cob and instead of just eating it the normal way by like, you know, devouring it and eating it with your teeth, you instead vomit up your stomach onto your plate and then suck off all the kernels and leave only the cob behind. That's basically what happens to these corals when they are attacked by a crown of thorn starfish. The other problem is that it's not only that they eat corals, but that they eat a lot of it too. Like you mentioned earlier, corals for the most part are made up of calcium carbonate. There's not a lot of living organism in terms of their proportional body mass, right? Yeah, the majority of them is just the mineral. Right. So if you think about what they'd have to eat in order to actually you know, maintain sustenance, if the starfish is leaving behind the skeleton, which is the vast majority of the of the mass of the coral, they have to go through a lot of coral to actually sustain themselves. And these are really big starfish too. A single individual crown of thorns can eat 10 square meters of coral per year, which is insane when you consider just how crowded coral reefs are. It's really incredible, right? Because coral reefs are stacked and on top, have corals on top of corals on top of corals. And they can eat 10 square meters of that. In a, just in a calendar year. That's an insane amount, especially when you consider like, yeah, like you just said, there's so much coral stack within coral. Not like they're a Roomba just cleaning a carpet. Right. You have like apartment buildings of corals. Like you have like Island of Manhattan type layering going on here. It's crazy. Basically, because they eat all these corals, it leads to not only like the destruction of reefs, also really high reproductive capabilities because a single individual can produce 50 million eggs in a single breeding season. Granted, these starfish are tiny plankton in their initial life stages, so not many of those will actually make it to adulthood, but the potential is definitely there for massive expansion, right? So kind of think about it like if people who are listening in North America are more familiar with blue crab biology, 
you know, blue crabs, when they're really, when they're young, they're just tiny little plankton. They eventually grow into the crabs that we know and enjoy as delicious meals. The starfish kind of operate in a similar way, right? The vast majority of planktonic starfish will not make it to adulthood where they're destroying reefs. Still, these starfish eat so much that they're responsible for half of all coral losses in the Great Barrier Reef by some estimates. That's bad. That's real bad. Half? Half. Half for just one animal is insane. I would assume most of that, without knowing anything, I would assume most of it would be like climate change, pollution, high nutrient concentrations, all kinds of man-made things. But half of them just being from the starfish. Right. So in researching this episode, I came across other threats to the Great Barrier Reef. The two main threats, the, the biggest threat to the Great Barrier Reef is storms. Storms come through, they break up reefs, they destroy the corals. That's the number one threat. Number two is the crown of thorn starfish. Number two, not water quality, not ocean acidification, not rising water temperatures. It's this starfish that is destroying the largest reef system on the planet. And not a lot of people have heard about it relative to those other threats. So I figured it was really important to talk about. So... These reefs are just being absolutely obliterated by these huge starfish, which are also highly toxic. And boy, is that insane, too. Because each crown of thorns starfish has an embedded toxin known as an asterosaponin. I think I pronounced that correctly. These compounds are found in many starfish, but the crown of thorn starfish is unique in that it has spines to actually, actually deliver those toxins into your skin if you touch it. So any other starfish, it doesn't really have those. It's just kind of, you know, poisonous after the fact. You just kind of vomit it up and really be unhappy with your life choices after you eat it. But with this one, it'll actually inject that poison into you after you step on it with those sharp spines. So let's say you're dumb enough to actually try to hurt a crown of thorns starfish. One of the sharp spines will puncture your skin. The spines can also puncture a wetsuit as well. So that definitely won't protect you at which point the spine will likely break off, becoming embedded in your skin. Then the toxin will leak into the wound and the surrounding tissue. In humans, a crown of thorns a starfish spine injury will cause nausea, tissue swelling, and, severe st- and a severe stinging pain. Surgery may be required to remove the spine as well as to prevent infection of the wound. Because, you know, who knows where that spine was before it became embedded in your skin. The wound will actually continue bleeding as well because the asterosaponin chemical has hemolytic qualities. What this means is that when present in high enough concentrations, it actually destroys your red blood cells. So, because your red blood cells are destroyed, the blood cannot clot and your wound just keeps bleeding. You do not want to step on these if you're going out for a swim. You absolutely do not want to step on one of these. You probably don't even want to touch one. I don't want to. Even, I don't want to be anywhere near it. No, I'm in the same room, that same bus, subway. No, you want to keep like a ten foot protective bubble between you and any crown of thorn starfish. They are bad news. Although, so overall, to a human, the injuries aren't lethal. I will say that, but they'll definitely require the right medical care to heal properly and are extremely painful. I'd kind of compare it to getting stung by a stingray. If that happens to you and you step on a stingray and the spine goes through your foot or something like that, 
you're going to the emergency room, you're getting medical treatment, your day is ruined and probably your next few weeks, but you're not, you're probably not going to die. I'm obviously not going to say it's never happened, but it's probably not lethal. Similar kind of thing with the crown of thorns. It's just really, really bad news if you do happen to encounter it and do something really stupid. With all of this in mind, what the heck do we do about these starfish? Because they're destroying reefs, and but they're also toxic and very well defended. There are actually several different approaches that we can take. Pick them up with some salad tongs. <laughs> yes, very, very long salad tongs you can use to gingerly move these starfish. Actually, what you can do there are people who you are able to handle these starfish very carefully. You just have to grab them from the bottom because they don't have the spines on the bottom. They just have their little tube feet, you know? So if you grab them from the bottom, they're not going to prick you and you're not going to get the toxin in your skin or anything. It's like a reverse jellyfish. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way of thinking about it. Actually. The best way to control these starfish is to stop over harvesting their predators because the main predator for the adult crown of thorn starfish is the giant triton snail. This is honestly a really badass predator because it does not care at all about the toxin within the crown of thorn starfish. It actually secretes venomous saliva, which paralyzes the starfish. And then the muscular foot of the snail shreds through the starfish skin and the snail then devours it. There are several videos of this online. If you get a chance to watch it, I would highly recommend it because it looks like something out of an alien movie. It's truly bizarre and wonderful and absolutely worth a watch. I hate to derail you for a sec, but I always assumed the crown of thorns were an invasive species. They're actually native to the Great Barrier Reef? Yeah, they're not invasive at all. Oh, so it's just getting out of control, I guess. Right. They just act like an invasive species because the ecological balance has been upset. So invasive species are able to be invasive because their natural predators aren't there. Well, what we've done is basically removed their natural predators from a lot of a lot of these ecosystems. So they're kind of running rampant. And the reason that we overharvest their predators is because the giant triton snail has a really pretty shell. And so that's it. That's it. That, uh, I'm serious. Their shells are really valuable collector's items. And so they're sold in markets throughout the world for lots and lots of money. I thought you would say, like, you know, you can grind them up. They're uh, hallucinogenic. It's like, uh, no, I mean, it's still crappy, but I could understand why someone might want to do it. It's just a pretty shell to look at. 3D print. It's one. just this huge conch looking shell that people want to spend a lot of money on because it looks really cool. Just want to they just want a paperweight. Basically, yeah, they just want a really, really cool looking paperweight. That's it. That sucks. It honestly like, does. Ah. This predator is being overharvested just because people want their shells. Overharvesting is never good, but sometimes you understand, like, okay, this is an insanely important food source. Like, okay, be reasonable, but just for the paperweight, that's all you're getting. Something to put on the mantle, something to say, hey, I spent a week in Australia, and this is what I got the show for it. Well, actually, in Australia, the giant triton snail is a is a nationally protected species at this point because people recognize its importance to controlling the crown of thorns. So you probably wouldn't be able to buy a giant triton snail shell in Australia, at least not one from a live snail. But that implies there's a black market for it. Yeah, and there definitely is because people want to buy them. 
The other thing, too, is that there is also evidence to suggest that reefs more populated with fish experience fewer crown of thorns starfish outbreaks, likely because the fish eat the crown of thorns in earlier life stages when they're either tiny plankton or less toxic juveniles. Those higher fish populations remove a lot of those plankton, so you wind up with less starfish, even if the conditions are ripe for the adults to thrive. So you have those two methods, stop overfishing and keep the triton snails around and make sure there are lots of them. The second thing that we can do is if all those fail, and we've already messed up the triton snail population and overfished the reef and the crown of thorn starfish are just everywhere, you can poison the starfish actually, or just simply remove the starfish from the reef and, you know, lay them out in the sun where they dehydrate and die or something else like that. But these efforts require teams of divers to really be effective. So the salad tong technique is not entirely unviable is what you're telling me. It's really not at all. That's not too far off from what they actually do during a crown of thorns outbreak on a reef. And credit where it's due, in some areas, these efforts have removed thousands of starfish from reefs and curbed some major outbreaks. So, you know, you do have to give credit there. They put in a lot of work and it paid off. Although it's probably not the most effective method. Ideally, we'd still have the triton snails around. You know, combating this problem will probably require some combination of protecting the predators as well as removing this, the starfish when they appear in those large numbers. I, I'm going to kind of mirror your piece in a way because you started talking about how parrotfish were really good for reefs and then pivoted to talk about how they sometimes are bad. I've been talking about how crown of thorn starfish are terrible for reefs, and now I'm going to kind of pivot to talk about how they can be good. Mm, that's what I was going to ask, actually. Yeah, because they are native species. These reefs have evolved to be balanced with these voracious predators in them. The reason for this is because in their natural numbers, the crown of thorn starfish does provide a valuable ecosystem service because they maintain coral diversity. You know, in a normal reef... Without the crown of thorn starfish around, the fast-growing corals would just quickly outcompete the slower-growing ones, and you'd have a lower diversity of corals, and the reef would suffer as a result. But these starfish preferentially eat the faster-growing species, so they leave room for the slower-growing species, and the diversity of the reef benefits as a result. But in a situation like the one that exists in large parts of the Great Barrier Reef, their natural predators aren't there, and so they just become overpopulated and start eating all the coral, which is really not what you want. Basically, in their natural numbers, they're highly beneficial, but in their current situation, without their predators, they run out of control and we have a problem. That's basically my piece on the crown of thorn starfish. There is also something else worth noting, which is that the starfish will avoid certain coral species, which have a, a mutualistic relationship with tiny crab species in the genus trapezia because these the crabs just come out and start beating the shit out of them. No, 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 no. Because these crabs are tiny. These crabs inhabit the corals. And so when a starfish comes to eat the coral, the crabs will actually come up onto the top of the coral and start pinching off the little tube feet <laughs> of the starfish. At which point the starfish decides that there are way easier meals around and just moves on and leaves the coral alone. Yeah, it's kind of like you go up to pick an apple from a tree, and as soon as you do it, you start getting attacked by ants. And you're like, you know what? I'm going to move on to a different tree without any ants. 
I was going to say, it's like someone that's breaking into your home and then suddenly all the roaches come out. (laughs) Or you just have like, (laughs) it's not kill again, but he just decides, you know what? That next house is looking a lot better. Or you just have like a really aggressive chihuahua that comes up to start biting ankles. That's perfect. (laughs) It's not going to kill him, but it's not making things fun either. Right, right. But yeah, I thought that was just like a little fun tidbit to include. And that's a whole nother, honestly, I could do a whole nother piece about that. When we, when we were initially going to do a coral reef episode, I was going to talk about the starfish and the trapezia crabs for the whole piece. But there's so much to do with the starfish that it kind of took up the whole piece. Yeah, well, I'm glad you did. I learned a lot from that. Like I mentioned, I did not know they were actually native to the reef. Mm-hmm. The way they're kind of vilified, it is a little sad because they're supposed to be there. But just through human impacts everything's out of balance and everything suffers because of it. Right, exactly. We have this idea of an invasive species just being a species that came from somewhere else. And most of the time that is the case. But it's also worth noting that under the right conditions, native species can get out of control and become invasive on their own without having to be transported outside of their native range. So that's something that's really interesting to consider and keep in mind when we're managing these environments. And that's why I mentioned with the parrotfish, even though they're largely doing all good, a big footnote in that book was that this is for healthy coral reefs. This has the potential to change. Right. Right. Exactly. And yeah, it's a similar thing with the starfish. In a healthy reef with all the proper predators in place, they offer a net benefit. But because of human actions and our love of fancy paperweights, we wind up causing this really chaotic problem. I do see a economic incentive here. All right, hear me out. Everyone wants those paperweights. They want these shells. They can't have the shells. You can't do that. But we got a ton of these crown of thorn starfish. Can I turn them into a Christmas tree ornament or something? I put them in the sun. I let them dry up. Can we do something with them? Can we flip this cell to tourists? Only if you want no one touching that Christmas tree. It won't be poisonous. I'm assuming it'll dry up. Yeah, but the toxins are still there. Like Some dish soap can't fix that? I'll let them dry out. I'll let them die. No. I don't think that's going to work. All right, we can put in a glass box or something. Let's sit there. I mean, you got to admit, it'd be cool to put on a mantle. Maybe. Maybe. I think it would just start rotting and just get really gross. No, I've seen starfish. When they die, they have the... They still have a sort of skeleton when they're all dried up. You can you can buy them in beach stores. They're mixed in with like the shells and sand that you see in people's bathrooms that never go to the beach ever. Yet somehow make <laughs> their bathroom beach themed when they live in a landlocked state. Well, no, that cracks me up. Even in like a near beach community, uh, somewhere on you know on the bay side of a beach community, you'll have these people who just you know came there to retire or whatever, live more modestly calmer environment but they don't go to the beach at all but because they're near the ocean they're like oh my house has to be beach themed they have to live up to it right it's like no you can make the inside of your house look like a hunting lodge you go to a hunting lodge about as often as you go to the beach so it's your house make it look however you want exactly it doesn't have to look like the beach you don't feel bound by the confines of the place in which you live anyway i digress that's basically the end of my piece Yeah, really cool. I really enjoyed it. Good, good. So with that being said, Aaron and I actually have a little announcement to make. 
Okay, so as you know, me and Russell have been at this for well, over a year now. Mm-hmm. Time has flown by. We started off with getting like, man, we would get like just a handful of listeners a month. And I mean, now we're there's quite a few. Yeah. I'm actually getting fan mail, people saying they like the show, and this is great. Yeah, absolutely. We really appreciate it, too. We do. So we're actually going to take a break. Now, this isn't bad. We're not breaking up. The, the band's staying together. Right. But this does take a lot of time to research on our own ends. as editing, too. That takes a lot. Absolutely. And we're not making any money off of this as of now. So our plan is to take a break just for the rest of the summer and then come back, hopefully, with good research topics, better equipment, just upgrade the show in every way that we can. Right. Basically, we're taking a break so that we can decompress and focus on ways to improve the show and make it better for you guys in the long run. And also me and Rustin, we, you know, we have things going on outside. We have work, family, etc. We have projects of our own that we're working on. And if we do it like this, then you'll always know an episode is coming out rather than life gets in the way and we can't manage to get one out in time. Right, right. So we figured we'd take this break let you guys know about it, and come back a lot stronger after the fact. Of course, if you have any suggestions, you know how to contact us, the theprimordialsouppod at gmail.com or on Twitter at souppodpodcast. Absolutely. Especially during this break, we'll have plenty of time. We'll be able to read any suggestions you might want to send our way. Right, and include them for future episodes and plan that out ahead of time. Yes. Some of our planning has not been the best. Yes. Yes, that's another thing we're going to work on in the future. A uh, Valentine's episode coming out <laughs> mid-March. <laughs> yep, yep. We're never going to live that one down. That's <laughs> no. that's going to haunt us a little bit. We, we still have friends that give us a hard time about that Absolutely, one. Absolutely, yeah. No, we, we want to avoid stuff like that happening in the future. And so that's one of the reasons we're taking this break. And I'll say until then, if you want to support the show, best way you can do it, just share it with a friend. Mm-hmm. Yep, spread the word. If you know someone you think might be interested in the show or just one episode in general, let them know. Send them a link. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's the best way the show gets out and gets more popular and more people hear about it. So, that being said, until the next season, I'm Rustin Perret. And I'm Aaron Johnson. We'll see you. Bye.